You're listening to Grace Saves All, the podcast which exists at the spiritual intersection of Christianity and universal salvation. In this podcast, we will be exploring an ancient and modern approach to Christianity, which affirms both that grace saves alone and that grace goes to all. And now, here is David Artman, author of Grace Saves All, The Necessity of Christian Universalism. I'm pleased to welcome today to the Grace Saves All podcast, Heath Bradley. Heath Bradley is a minister in the Arkansas Conference of the United Methodist Church. He is currently working bivocationally as the pastor of Living Waters United Methodist Church in Centerton, Arkansas, as well as being a licensed therapist working primarily with couples and people with trauma. Heath has a Master of Arts in Philosophy from the University of Arkansas and a Master of Divinity from Southern Methodist University. Heath is also an adjunct lecturer in philosophy at the University of Arkansas in Fayetteville. He's been a pastor for the past 15 years in churches in Texas and Arkansas, as well as having served as the United Methodist Chaplain at Vanderbilt University in Nashville, Tennessee. We are interested in speaking with Heath on the Grace Saves All podcast because he is the author of an excellent book on Christian universalism called Flames of Love, Hell, and Universal Salvation. Heath published Flames of Love with Whippenstock Publishers in 2012, and I read it during the time I was coming to embrace universal restoration, and I found it helpful, and it even inspired me to write my own book on the topic and to see if I could get it published with Whippenstock as well, which all ended up happening. So, Heath, thank you for your work and for your inspiration, and welcome to the Grace Saves All podcast. Yeah, thank you very much. I'm glad to meet you, and I'm looking forward to this conversation. Uh, let's just begin with your experience uh, as a human being, just growing up in the faith and then, uh, you know, as we all do, going through various stages up until that point where Christian universalism comes on your radar screen and and that begins to be persuasive for you. So tell us a little bit about this. Yeah, sure. You bet. So I, I did grow up in church. I grew up in the denomination that I still am a part of, uh, the United Methodist denomination. Uh, I grew up in a, a fairly small rural congregation uh, where uh, the topic of hell wasn't something that came up a lot. It wasn't mm-hmm. it wasn't something that was preached about very often. And in fact, I don't remember any sermons on hell at the church I grew up in. Now, it could have been, well, you know, the, the United Methodist Church isn't exactly what I would call a hellfire church. No, we're not. We're not. Um, now, it could have been talked about, and I probably wasn't paying attention always, but um, you, you're certainly right in saying it's not a strong, we're certainly not known for hellfire and brimstone kind of preachers. Um, so I grew up in church, uh, nurtured in faith, but um, I never really thought about the question too much until I got to college. And when I got into uh, college as an undergrad, I became part of a student campus ministry group that was very... Um, I guess the, the theological tone there was much more conservative uh, than what I was used to. Okay, and, and I fell in love with this ministry, the people there, a lot of the things that we did. Um, but there was this this one element of belief that I just it, it stood out to me as just seeming so out of step with everything else that was said about God. I mean, we we sung about a God of grace. We the, a God of grace was preached about, but. It was like there was this, I think of it this way now, is it's like God had a shadow side. It's like there was this other part that we didn't talk about too much, but 
a lot of people around there still believe that like if, if you weren't Christian, you were certainly going to burn in hell forever. It was in that context when I really started wrestling with that question of like, is that really what the Bible teaches? Is that really what it means you know, to be a faithful Christian? Do you have mm-hmm. to believe that? And so I would say it was when I was an undergrad when I really started wrestling with that question quite a bit. Where are you? Where are you an undergraduate at this time? So I went to undergrad at Arkansas uh, Tech in Russellville, Arkansas. Okay. And then shortly after that uh, is when I, I decided to do a, a, a master's degree at the University of Arkansas in Fayetteville. And that was a, a time of real wrestling for me. I was very fortunate to have some some good teachers, and uh, they were very strong in philosophy of religion. And so it was during my philosophy years at the U of A where I encountered uh, Thomas Talbot's writings. It was his writings that really first put universalism uh, on my radar. As I remember in your book, uh, you got the, in, the Inescapable Love of God by Thomas Talbot was assigned to you. Yeah, yeah, that's right. So let me back up for just a moment. I'm kind of missing, a, there is an important part of this I kind of skipped. My first semester there, I before I had encountered Thomas Talbot's writings, I took a course called Ancient Greek Philosophy and Christian Theology was the name of the course. And I learned for the first time about people like uh, Origen and Gregory of Nyssa, some of these ancient, often referred to as the, the church yeah. fathers. And I, you know, I didn't know anything about that history, that there was actually this long lineage of universalist thinkers that saw hell as temporary and as more purgatorial or, or purifying. That kind of, I guess, really put it on my radar of like, well, wait, maybe there's other options out there. Uh, and then it was in a philosophy mm-hmm. of religion class with, with Tom Senor that he, he assigned that book, The Inescapable Love of God. At first, I was really resistant to, I think, what the message of that book. There was a part of me that really wanted to believe it, but there was another part of me that thought it was kind of too good to be true. And so um, I ended up writing my master's thesis on the topic. And when I first started, it started out as a critique of universalism. Um, But the more I studied it, I I guess I became converted that way. I just, all the arguments I was encountering were stronger than the arguments that I was producing against it. And um, mm-hmm. I ended up embracing it. Uh, so that, that's kind of it in a nutshell. And so then is your book kind of an elaboration on that thesis? Um, loosely. it My thesis, because it was a philosophy program, my thesis was really strongly focused on issues of freedom, human freedom, free will. And so uh, I really focused in on that particular question about how different philosophical conceptions of freedom could be utilized in a universalist way of seeing things. So in my thesis, I didn't really get a whole lot into scripture exegesis and church history and okay. evangelism. So the the heart of that was really more philosophical issues about freedom. And then I expanded on that quite a bit in the book with uh, in other areas. Okay. So you, you eventually, so you, you, you get the book out in in 2012. And what, what happened after that? What kind of response did you get to it? As you might imagine, mixed. It was a mixed response. Um, and I anticipated that. I anticipated people having objections. The, um, a lot of people really loved it. A lot of people you know, told me things like this really kind of articulates a view that I've wanted to hold but didn't quite know how to put it. So I got a lot of, and still get a lot of positive, encouraging feedback I think the mm-hmm. most disappoint, 
the dis- most disappointing kind of feedback I got was based on, I think, misunderstandings about it. So there were s- some people thought that, you know, if you're a universalist, that means basically you're saying um, kind of everything's relative, that all religions are the same, that there's nothing special about Christ. And so it. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Yeah. And so but, but that was really from people that didn't actually kind of read carefully what I was talking about. But I think they, they yeah, can. It would be hard to read your book and come away with that. Yeah, I try to be very careful to say this is a very specifically Christian version of universalism. It's not a pluralist or relativist version of it. But I think that I think some of those distinctions get easily lost uh, on some. And so I think that was my only disappointment with some of the feedback from some folks. But I have to say, by and large, it was mostly positive feedback. Now, it is kind of surprising for for folks to uh, have a United Methodist minister write a book like this but but in your book you have a you have a footnote in which you elaborate uh, on this and you write in your footnote although Christian Universalism was not John Wesley's view and it is not the official view of the United Methodist Church I believe that the kind of Christian Universalism outlined in this book can flow organically out of key convictions of Wesleyan theology without subverting or distorting any of the key doctrines of the United Methodist Church in my own theological development, it has been Wesley's insistence that love is God's reigning attribute, along with his conviction that love and justice cannot be separated in God, that led me to explore and ultimately embrace the hope of Christian universalism. Could you say some more about that that footnote and what you were getting at there? Yeah, you bet. So the main reason I've remained a United Methodist is... I'm in full full agreement with John Wesley's theological project of making God's love absolutely central to theology, to Christian living. And, and, and Wesley did that, I think, in ways that really stood out in his time. So that phrase, reigning attribute, that comes from John Wesley's uh, commentary on 1 John chapter 4, verse 16, God is love. And by reigning attribute, he means that love is not just something God does from time to time. It's not just a part of who God is. It's the very core of who God is. And that everything that God is and everything that God does flows from love for God's creation, a love that wills the best for God's creation. And so when I say that, I think that my view can flow organically from Wesley's I mean that my view tries to take very seriously that God is love. But where I differ from Wesley, see, Wesley had, I think, he had the conviction that God is love, but he was also convinced that the scriptures Mm -hmm. clearly taught an everlasting hell. Passages like, you know, the classic passages like Matthew 25, the sheep and the goats, right? He took passages like that to be like Mm -hmm. a clear indicator that there's an everlasting hell for some. And so I think what Wesley had to do is he had to try to figure out how to hold those two together. God is love, but there's everlasting hell for some. And to his credit, he was able to do that with what's often called like the free will defense of hell. This idea that it's not God picking and choosing Mm -hmm. who goes to hell. It's human beings resist God and continue to resist God. And so it's that separating themselves from God, which is in fact hell. Right. The famous line from C.S. Mm-hmm. Lewis, the gates of hell are locked on the inside. That, that sums up Wesley's view of hell mm-hmm. pretty well. Now, I just I just disagree with Wesley about what the scriptures teach about that. I think there's been a lot of scholarship, you know, since Wesley's day in the last 300 years that really cast into doubt uh, the idea that those passages like the sheep and the goats 
should be uh, taken as, mm-hmm. you know, clearly preaching an everlasting hell. Those Greek words, I'm sure you're familiar with this stuff, but, you know, those Greek words that often get translated as right. everlasting or eternal. I mean, there's significant debate nowadays on what those words mean. And there's a lot of, you know, top-notch scholars that, that point out this doesn't necessarily mean unending duration. Um, so that's where I differ from Wesley. I don't take those hell texts nearly as obvious as as he did. One of the primary objections that you run into this is, well, what about free will? And if um, I've heard people say, well, uh, what if people don't want to be saved? What if they want to be rebels to the end? Well, well wouldn't that be unfair of God to take uh, their, their right to go to hell forever if they want to, or be annihilated forever? If that's what they really want, yeah. then wouldn't it be unfair or not even good um, for God to somehow, I don't know, brainwash them or torture them some way into making them think into making them think differently? So how, how have you worked through those issues? Yeah. And that's a really important question. It is. Um, and that's the question that I wrestled with the most, especially earlier on when I was writing my thesis. Um, I guess a couple of things. One, I certainly don't think God ever twists anybody's arm or forces them or tortures them or anything like that. I should also say that I don't think that God's work in someone's life is limited to this lifetime. And that's mm-hmm. that's an assumption that Christians often have, but it's one that I find little to no support for in Scripture. I, I think there's a, a number of reasons you know, to think from Scripture that God continues to work on people even in the life to come. And so I don't think God's just limited to life on earth. I think that that human beings are set up in such a way that God is the ultimate source of our joy and our happiness. And I also think that we naturally seek that. We all naturally seek joy and happiness or fulfillment, whatever words you want to use to describe that. Mm -hmm. Um, And so the further we separate ourselves from God, the more unfulfilled we ultimately are. Jesus's parable of the prodigal son is what comes to mind, right? When the the younger son says to the father, give me your share of the estate, the father honors Mm -hmm. his free will, right? He lets him go away. Right. After a while, right, the son experiences the negative consequences of his actions. He experiences the emptiness and the loneliness. And that emptiness and loneliness ends up driving him back home to his father and I guess I think of something like that as as how God works on people, that, that ultimately it's it's not about God twisting our arm. It's about God waiting for us and us realizing where the true source of our fulfillment lies. Um, and it, you know, in, in my view, it, it does take certainly some faith and hope that that's where people will ultimately end up. You know, I suppose it's possible some might resist forever, but that just doesn't, it doesn't make any sense to me. That doesn't seem very likely at all. That, that's that's kind of how I wrestle with it. Yeah, the free, the idea of think we were used to sort of, I think in the USA, used to thinking of, you know, freedom is is our birthright. And so we get to choose our own destiny. Mm-hmm. And the idea of a God who lets us choose our own destiny certainly seems kind of in line with our, with our cultural uh, kind of expectations. Uh-huh. Uh, but then I, I, you know, I've been persuaded that, especially with working with people in recovery, you know, that, that people who are underneath a powerful addiction will think that they're making free choices. But what they come to realize is, is they're operating underneath a powerful delusion. 
Mm-hmm. And and once that powerful delusion is 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 removed, then they they freely that then they want to move towards things that are good towards life you know towards positive towards so I I think that's a, yeah so a free choice in order for there to be a free choice we have to really understand our situation and what's in our best interest and all those things so it's if God has truly made us so that we don't find our rest till we find our rest in God, then it's not a violation of our free will to find that out and to, and, and to act on it so that we actually, we sort of become, when we go against that, well, there's that passage in Bible talks about becoming slaves to sin. We actually don't become free. We become enslaved. Mm-hmm. Does any of that kind of language work mm-hmm. for you? Yeah, no, I love, I love the way that you put that, especially with thinking about it in terms of, of, of an addiction and the things that kind of restrict uh, our choices in this life. Um, yeah, I know that that resonates a lot because, you know, along with with addiction, recovery from it is quite painful. You know, it requires confronting all sorts of difficult impulses and, and perhaps trauma and painful emotions and memories. And, you know, therapy, you know, uh, for addictions and other things can be very painful, but it's also has the potential to be very healing. And I suppose in some ways that's that's kind of how I think about about hell, you know, that it's, that it can be a very painful experience, whether it's in this life or the next, but one that can lead us to healing, one that can lead us to confront the ways we've deceived ourselves, uh, the ways we've been blinded in certain ways. Uh, and so, yeah, I, I resonate a lot with that way of thinking about it. Now, one of the things, uh, one of the parts of your book that I really enjoyed, I actually included a quote, uh, of this passage in my book from your book. And it was the story of the the time that I don't know I can't remember exactly the detail, but you, you, somehow you were contacted by a person that was wanting some ministerial counseling, mm. and and they had they had gotten out of prison and they had been in prison uh, because they had offended against children. Yeah, and you originally really didn't want to interact with this repulsive human being, but then you were coming to this view that, that God is with all of us, even in our darkest times. And so, so you had to, you know, consent to, you decided to consent to be with this person and you had a very eye opening experience in Uh this encounter. Could you tell that story? Yeah, you bet. Yeah. This was very powerful for me. Um, also hard to talk about, but, but, but I'll be glad to though it, but it was, a. Yes, it was a situation where this this man who was a, a level three sex offender, uh, he, he had abused uh, and raped children. And, you know, you know, for I'm sure for those that are listening to this, like when you just say those words, like it just it's just repulsive and it's hard to think of something more heinous and, and just atrocious. Through another contact, someone had told me this person was looking for like a spiritual counselor that uh, because they, they couldn't attend any church because of restrictions on not being around children and whatnot. They were looking for a pastor, a spiritual counselor, someone that could just kind of help them get back on their feet, so to speak. And I was very reluctant to meet with this person because I just wasn't quite sure, like, what what do you say? What, what do you do? What do you, you know, I was kind of afraid how I might act. I just felt intimidated by it. But mm-hmm. uh, I just felt, you know, this was one of those situations where I just felt the Holy Spirit kind of pushing me in that direction. And so, you know, I agreed to meet with this person. And I remember our first meeting uh, that I was, 
and I think I might I, I can't remember if I say this in the book or not, but I was I think I was expecting to see someone with like greasy hair and red eyes, just like an evil looking person. You know, I really thought that's kind of what right. I, was see. And I just see this very normal looking farmer, you know, c- comes in and uh, sits down. And um, I knew he was really intimidated about being there. He was very scared to be there because he knew that I knew what he had been in for. And uh, I remember that, you know, just feeling you know, led to tell him that, you know, that, you know, God hates what you did, but, but God still loves you. And, um, he started crying when I told him that, and it was a very, it was a very powerful moment. And he went on to, to, to tell me lots of things. We met for several months together every week. And, um, this, this is a person who himself had experienced all sorts of, of abuse as a child, uh, when he was in prison, he was he was beaten and he was raped. Um, but he told me that the most painful thing he's ever experienced in his life was being forgiven by his daughter. And his daughter was one of his victims. And he shared this experience about his daughter coming to forgive him and how much it hurt him to receive that forgiveness. Because in being forgiven by her, it's like he realized the full extent of what he did. Like he had done such a horrible thing to his beloved child. And that, that forgiveness just in a sense made him feel the full impact of that. Um, but it also set him free from, from some of the guilt and shame. I mean, he would, I don't want to mislead. He would continue to carry around guilt and shame over it, but it began to set him free from that. And I think one of the things that I walked away from that was, was this idea that, you know, sometimes people oppose forgiveness because they think it lets people off too easy, right? It, it lets them off the hook. It's like they're getting off right. free or something. And so I was so impacted when he said that like the most painful thing in his life was not being beaten, not being raped. The most painful thing in his life was being forgiven, and that really challenged me to see how forgiveness and justice can go together and, and with reconciliation. Um, and it that was an experience, I think, that motivated me to try to start thinking differently theologically about forgiveness, about justice, about reconciliation, and how all those can can sometimes go together. But yeah, I'm, I'm glad mm-hmm. you brought that up. That was that was one of the more pivotal moments in ministry for me. And just to see, well, I included I included that story in my book for exactly that reason. I appreciate you doing that. One of the things, yeah, one of the things too that that was transformational for me. I, I think really I started thinking more about this after I started reading Thomas Talbot's work. But was the importance that my Christian theology also be philosophically coherent, mm. and uh, that if I was you know, how was I to think about a theology in which God is the first cause of all that is, and God is all-knowing and all-loving and all-powerful? Well, then then anything that does happen in this creation is something that God knows uh, will happen or can happen, and so must have some provision for healing not only the, not only the victim but the perpetrator and bringing, uh, somehow bringing everything to a good to a good conclusion. Mm-hmm. And so 
I started thinking maybe I was still thinking scripture about scripture in my theology, but I also started thinking a little more philosophically about it as well, about first causes and secondary causes and, and mm-hmm. how, and how things might, how something might end up being logically, co- logically coherent. And what I noticed is you can put together a biblical theology that has all kinds of stuff in it, but it doesn't mean that it's necessarily logically coherent. And so that's why I see that philosophy, it's important that our, our, that our theology is philosophically coherent as well. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that. Yeah, you bet. And that's, that's very well put. Um, yeah, we certainly, and I think that's the thing I'm most grateful for with my background in philosophy is that it, it did raise the issue of coherence to the forefront and being coherent and consistent with what we believe. Um, and so I know that was, a, that was a strong motivating factor for me because like I said, you know, from, from early on, it just felt so incoherent to talk about a God of love and, and grace who either, you know, determines some people go to heaven or hell. I always thought that was absurd. I never really entertained that even that seriously, but the idea that God like gives up on people, you know, um, like after this mm-hmm. life, what are, you know, you the few decades we have here determine your course for eternity. And that after this, God just sort of gives up and nothing can change. That seemed to me to be incoherent, right? If, if God's truly loving and sustains us in existence beyond this life, why would God's attitude towards us change, right? If God's open to us now, why wouldn't God be open to us in the world to come to make changes of the will and changes of our heart? And so, uh, yeah, the drive towards coherence, I think that's a nice way to think about, in some ways, my theological journey of trying to make it all fit together around the center of God being love, you know, pure love, not just love being part of God, mm-hmm. but the very center of God. Um, I think that's what happened for me when I finally came to Christian universalism. Sometimes I tell people it's like a unified field theory for spirituality. Yeah. It's like everything... You know, it's everything fits together. Nothing is working against anything else. And it's all just it's something that is beautifully it's something that is beautifully uh, working together. And and once I saw that and experienced it, I couldn't sort of not see it or experience it anymore. Yes. Yeah. That, that's a great way to put it. Um, yeah. I, I love that way of putting it. You're right. With with Christian universalism. I agree with you. There's nothing that feels inconsistent to me. There's nothing that feels disjointed or, you know, like before with the more traditional view, it feels like God has a shadow side. Like there's this other dark side to God that we all kind of know about, but don't really want to talk about. In some ways, it's kind of like, I feel like the traditional doctrine of hell, it's kind of like a toxic family secret in the church. It's something we're all vaguely aware of, but no one really wants to address. And I think that that, you know, along with that idea of it being like a toxic family secret, it's, it does a lot of harm for people, right? It, if, if that's the kind of church background you grow up in, uh, where the traditional view of hell is taught as like gospel truth and there's no other options, that creates so much anxiety for people and so much, I, you know, I don't mm-hmm. think it's too strong of a word to say like religious trauma for people. You know, people are traumatized by this view. Um, right. It, and it's... yeah. Yeah. Well, I was one of those. I was I, I was one of those people. I didn't grow up. I didn't grow up going to church. And so the times when I started going to church, friends would invite me. I grew up in Irving, Texas. So I'm kind of in the Bible Belt uh-huh. in the 70s growing up there. 
and uh, coming of age there. Uh-huh. And I would go and I was basically being told as a teenager that even if you can't think of anything really wrong that you've ever done, God is still going to send you to hell forever. And so you need to, because you're born a sinner and God is holy and he has to send sinners to hell and he does that forever. And so you need to accept Jesus as your savior. Cause if you don't, if you die tonight, you're going to be in hell t- tomorrow for the rest of eternity. And I wouldn't, I, I, I wasn't persuaded really. Uh, well, there was one time I caved in, but, the, <laughs> but mostly, <laughs> mostly, it just, even the time that I kind of caved in and said a prayer, it still felt weird. Mm. Uh, and, and so the one thing about it that really stuck and it just, and it, and now I look back on it and that was very traumatic for me to feel like the God who created everything was also a torturer and he was wanting me to believe certain things that I wasn't sure about. And it's going to put me in hell forever. And all those things were just very, um, all those things were very traumatic for me. It took me a long time. It took me a long time to get over all that. And one of the reasons I wanted to bring that up is that these same people spoke authoritatively to me mm. and they didn't tell me this was an opinion. They said, this was what the Bible clearly taught oh. and that to reject this was to reject Christianity. Mm. And so it was really eye opening to me when, you know, cause they told me they didn't believe in the traditions of men. They just believed the Bible. Mm. So it was very eye opening for me to realize that Christianity was around for, you know, four or 500 years before anything like some kind of uh, coherence developed in one part in the Western church, before there was some strong ideas that this eternal torment doctrine is really only once you get into the Latin Roman church and Augustine and all of that. So really, it wasn't what, quote, the Bible taught. It was a tradition. It was a doctrinal tradition. That, that once I learned, I could, ta- I could trace the history of it. And once I learned it was a doctrinal tradition that I could trace the history of, and I could understand why it had come into being and why other people thought, it, it just freed me up to know that, no, it had not always been that way. Yeah. Yeah. Anytime someone yeah, tells you that they're just giving you the, the truth straight from God, not human opinion, like you should run far away from those kinds of people. You know, that they have, <laughs> there's no self-awareness of how every understanding of the Bible comes from it through an interpretive filter. It comes from a tradition. Uh, and I know the kind of church culture you're talking about. There's a lot there's a lot of that where people just they preach as if they've got this clear, straight word from God. They just completely neglect, you know, the actual tradition on this. And, you know, I'm glad you brought up that, it, you know, the kind of the timeline there, because people often refer to the, the everlasting torment view of hell as the traditional view. Right. But in, some, in some ways, that's very, very misleading just historically, because like, like you point out, for the first few hundred years of the church, there were a variety of views, and um, and this is a debatable point, but some even argue that you know the universalist view was the most dominant view in the first few centuries. Um, it certainly wasn't like a small heresy; it was it was held by lots of major theologians. Um, Gregory of Nyssa is my favorite, uh, and I th- I think he's worth pointing out because you know when most Christians historically think about orthodoxy. They think the Nicene Creed, that's been the creed that's defined Christian belief, you know, since the fourth century or even earlier. Um, And Gregory of Nyssa was one of the, you know, top presiding bishops at the Council of Nicaea. 
and he himself was a universalist. Now, universalism wasn't in the creed. I'm not making that claim, but it says something that the person they put in charge of, you know, over the council that determines this creed was himself a universalist, you know? Yeah, it's funny when you when you say, you know, uh, okay, so that that basically orthodoxy, the, the orthodox conception of Christianity was brought to you by somebody who was a universalist, basically. Yeah. And Gregory of Nyssa. And he was even he was even honored as a father of the of the fathers. And right. now I think one thing is, you know, you've mentioned Gregory of Nyssa, but universalism often gets associated with Origin of Alexandria. Uh-huh. And Origin in his day was trying to present a philosophically coherent Christianity. And he he, he took that first Corinthians fifteen twenty eight very seriously, that God would be all in all. And so he created, on first principles, he created the first systematic Christian theology, but he was also very speculative and wide-ranging in his thinking. And during his day, the bounds of Christian thought were not uh, were not as established. And then later on, people took some of his speculative ideas and elaborated on them, so that by the 6th sixth, sixth century, you have a, you have the second, called the second, uh, Council at Constantinople, or the Fifth General Council of the Church, and Origen's name is listed as a heretic at that council, and then that casts a shadow over the idea that God will save all, because they thought, oh, well, if you, if you believe that, then you believe a whole bunch of other things that have to go along with it that don't necessarily go along with it. And then that kind of cast a cloud over Christian universalism in the Western Church, basically from the 6th century from the sixth century onwards. Can, can you say a little bit about how you work through all of that? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, one of the things I was thinking about as you, as you were pointing that out is, and I, and I remember studying origin in that, in that class that I was referring to earlier and, and his views, I don't, I'm not going to pretend to understand most of it. He, he was a very dense writer and he, like you said, he would speculate in different directions. He wasn't really concerned with getting together like a clear cut systematic theology. He felt more free uh, to just engage in some holy speculation about things. Um, that's a good way of putting it. Yeah. It, it, which says something about the, you know, that's a, in my mind, at least that's a very healthy theological climate where there's a sense of freedom to explore, uh, without being, you know, kind of locked in on any specific view, but, you know, in ter- terms of the historical development, uh, and universalism being labeled as heresy, eventually, I think that, it can't be ignored that the uniting the church's power with political power and particularly the Roman empire, I think that had a a big effect on theological doctrines to some extent, especially with hell, because I mean, just to put it bluntly, the the view of everlasting torment for all non-Christians is a theological doctrine that has a lot of power for controlling people. Right. And, and so if you're, if you're bringing together, Mm -hmm. Yeah, religious belief and political power. There's really no other view that would be more politically powerful that says if you don't kind of join in lockstep with you know what we say, you're going to burn forever. Um, and so I, th- I think we have to think about that too. That you know these decisions were ultimately made not by a bunch of people getting together and praying and discerning God's will and blah blah blah. These decisions were made by political leaders, right? Um, with when the church and state are becoming one. And so they're quite literally using power to enforce these beliefs. And so I, I think we have to remember that that was a very human, very political process. 
and not just taking all of that stuff as like, you know, just because a council said it, that doesn't mean it, that God said it. That that means the council said it, right? And, and those councils are very, very human. Yeah, and there's a lot of and there's a, I'm I'm doing some more work on that now, and there's a lot of debate about that. The Pope didn't didn't go to that council. Uh, had to be arm twisted later on over it. Uh, there's a lot of there's a lot of controversy about that. The fifth uh, the fifth ecumenical uh, the fifth ecumenical council. Yeah. Well, let's uh, let's switch gears a little bit and let's talk about let's let's do some preaching. You're a minister, and so you've got to proclaim the gospel. So tell me, Heath, what's the gospel? What's the good news? Mm, the good news. The good news is that, that God is love, that the energy of love that we experience in life, any kind of love we experience ultimately flows from God and is God. And God is nothing but the energy of love. You know, God constantly holds us in existence. God constantly is giving God's love to us. God wants nothing but good for us. I think the good news of Jesus is that, that God is ultimately for us, as Paul would put it, um, that God's on our side, you know, that, that God is not an angry deity that needs to be placated, that you, it's not about believing the right things or doing the right things to get this God's loving attention, that just God, by God's very nature, loves us and even likes us, that God delights in us. Uh, and, you know, there's all sorts of ways, you know, being human beings, that we can get out of touch with that. And a lot of that is not our fault. You know, we are, we are very complex beings that have been produced, you know, by evolution. And then I think, you know, in my views, uh, you know, Evolution is consistent with belief in God as creator. But, you know, we're creatures that have evolved in ways that, you know, life can be very hard for us. And so we can, I think, often, uh, especially if we're traumatized or neglected or abused, there's all sorts of ways in which we turn away from love in life. And we try to seek other things to give us fulfillment, whether that's through power or status of some kind or experiences. Um it's easy to turn away from love and get burnt by it. But I think the good news is that no matter how many times we turn away, God's love is still there. It's still constant. It's steadfast. We can always come home to it. Um, and when we do that, we're going to live the fullest life we can. When we live in tune with love, love of God, love for God, love of self, love of others, when we live in love, we live our fullest life. Uh, and that's, I guess that's how I would put the good news of Jesus, is that he came to tell us that, to show us that, to make it possible uh, for us to live that way. Um, one of the scriptures that stands out to me the most is when Jesus, uh, in John's gospel, says, I've come so that you may have life and have it to the full. As much as we're talking about the afterlife, you know, I, I certainly don't think the good news of Jesus is limited to the afterlife. I think Jesus wants us to have the fullest and best kinds of mm -hmm. lives here and now, and that we can have those as we open up to love and live by love. So there you go. There's my little sermon about the good news. <laughs> well, what, what struck me about Jesus once I got to study him was when I was growing up, just to hear, not, not, not growing up, 
knowing anything about Christianity, but if you, when I was growing up, if you had asked me, what is, what is the message of Christianity? The message of Christianity is the good news that if you accept Jesus as your savior, you don't have to go to hell forever. Right. And, uh, you know, I mean, you, you, and then if you listen to him and say, well, you, you accept him and then there's things you need to do, you know, to follow up on that. But the good news is even though you have to make all these sacrifices in life, like you can't have a lot of stuff, you can't, you can't like all the, all the really good stuff. You can't, you can't accumulate wealth. You can't go, there's all these different things you can't do. But the payoff is, is that even though you, you get to, you can't really have a good time in life because you have to go to church all the time and serve the poor and do evangelism. So you can't go and have fun, but here's the payoff. You get to go to heaven. Meanwhile, everybody else that had fun in this lifetime and lived it up and kicked up their heels and partied. Yeah. Well, they had a good time, but guess what? They're going to hell forever. Oh gosh. So that was kind of how, that was kind of how it was presented to me. Uh huh. So what's interesting then is if you present this idea of universal salvation to somebody who is sort of in that mode, one of their responses is, well, if everybody is going to go to heaven eventually, why would I want to be a Christian now? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, I, mm-hmm. if, if everybody gets to go to heaven eventually, you know what I would do? I would go and just have fun. I wouldn't go do this Christianity stuff. I would go and, and do all those things I really want to do. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I think it's kind of it, it, it almost strikes me as, as almost like the response of the older brother in the parable of the prodigal son. Like like this son of yours goes out and did and you sort of get the idea, all the stuff I would like to do, but but haven't. Meanwhile, I've just stayed here and enslaved for you. And then he comes back and then he gets he gets rewarded for all of it. Right. Right. Yes. Yeah. That line of thinking, though, to me, just shows a. um like a, a complete missing the point, really. Like it, it's, um, I think Jesus wants us to have the best life here and now, right? Um, I think that you know, we it's it's easy to think about. Okay, if if we all just all go to heaven, then I'm just going, I'm going to sleep with anybody who I want to. I'll spend money on whatever I want to, and and just have so much fun. But I guess to that, I would just say, come on, let's get real. Like those are not the sorts of things that ultimately lead to deep and sustained happiness, right? That those are the, you know, you, you hear these stories about celebrities who have it all and live these sorts of lifestyles. And, and so often you, you read these tragic stories about they're, they're addicted to drugs and suicide. Like th- this idea that we build up this idea of like a totally unrestrained life where we just follow every impulse and seek every pleasure we want, that that's the way to genuine happiness is just false. And and to be quite frank, I don't even think you need to be a religious person to believe that. Like if you just pay attention to human experience and, you know, you pay attention to what psychology has to say, like, you know, living as a generous and loving person ultimately makes you happier. Um, I certainly want the best life I can have right now. Uh, I, I just think that following Jesus and his way of love is the best way to, to get at that. Yeah. And so to, to the, the kind of person that you're talking about, I would just, you know, I would say, you know, maybe sure. Go knock, knock yourself out. See what happens. Right. And just see, see what happens. with that. <laughs> you know? uh, See where it goes. Well, let's suppose that, you know, imagining somebody is listening to this uh, podcast, they're listening to us talk and they're, you know, wondering whether this Christian universalism thing can really be like you said, it sounds a little too good to be true. Yeah. You know, and 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 we're sort of conditioned 
in life that anything that sounds too good to be true probably is too good to be true. You know, like maybe you're selling us something. It can't really be, it can't really be this good. So uh, what are some, I guess, what are some recommendations you would give to somebody who, who was wanting to know more about this? Where, where would you point them? What kinds of things would you, would you say hmm. to them? Hmm. Well, that's a really good question. So to the person who's maybe just kind of curious about this, but not really. Yeah. I mean, you know, they're, they're, they're like, they're not antagonistic about it. They're just wondering, okay, well, yeah. So, okay, well, where, where would I go if I wanted to be more confident about this? How would I go about doing that? Where would, where would I go? Where would you, where, do, where are some places you would point them? Yeah. I guess one, one thing I would ask them to consider, I know for me that once I started just entertaining the idea that maybe God really is love and everything God does is love. And so that means if there's a hell, it's got to be an expression of love and it can be redemptive. And so once I started really entertaining the idea of universalism, I read through the New Testament again, just with that thought in mind, trying to see like what's in there that could support it. You know, when I had kind of those lenses in right. place and I thought, well, I wonder what themes or passages could support that idea. And it, it, it turns out there, there's a lot, <laughs> there, there's quite a bit that if you, if you read with that sort of openness and that kind of filter in place, you can see all sorts of indications in scripture. Um, you know, for example, like in the letters of Paul, there's all sorts of passages that we include in hymns uh, and songs that we don't really think about a lot, but like, you know, every knee shall bow, every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. I remember singing that song growing up, but I don't know that we ever stopped and thought about, wait, every, mm-hmm. every knee is going to bow? Every tongue is going to confess Jesus? Like, in some ways, Christian universalism mm-hmm. is like hidden in plain sight in lots of places. It's just we've been conditioned not to see it. And so I guess, so one thing I would say to a person is, you know, if you if you can gain some openness to that, to start paying attention to the scriptures, to, to hymns. Like it, it, you start seeing indications in places that you might've missed before, you know, that you might've overlooked. Uh, that, that's, that's one piece of advice I would give. And, I, and two, I would, and I try to do this in the book. I, I think that there are a lot of issues on which scripture is not abundantly, obviously clear. And I think issues about the afterlife and exactly what happens and when it happens and to who it happens, I think there's a lot of a lot of things we don't know. There's a lot of uncertainty. Um, and, you know, as much as I think this view is true, you know, I, I acknowledge I'm putting the pieces together in a certain way. Um, and so, you know, I would never want someone to think that this has to be the view that you have. Um, I think there's some other respectable views. And so as strongly as I feel about it, uh, I think maybe approaching it with like a, an a tentativeness, just a kind of a sense of like curiosity and openness. Um, cause there's, I mean, there's some important objections to this view and there's certainly passages of scripture that don't seem to fit this model. So I just, mm-hmm. kind of a, just kind of an openness, you know, and that's what I appreciated uh, about, uh, the, the the book the evangelical universalist mm-hmm. written under the pen name Gregory McDonald it was written by Robin Perry yeah. but he you know he 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 has a very kind of gentle uh, gentle spirit in that book the other end of the spectrum is David Bentley Harks that all shall be saved mm-hmm. and he's extraordinarily definite uh-huh. you know in the way that 
you know, in the way that he argues. And then I would throw Thomas Talbot's inescapable love of God kind of in between those mm-hmm. uh, kind of in those true just the rigorous logic that Talbot uses. I mean, by the time you finish that book, it you realize that you've met somebody that is interested in very rigorous, a very rigorous, logically coherent approach to things. And just the way that he uses logic to evaluate arguments and mm-hmm. things was very uh, was very eye opening to me. But, uh, you know, but so on the one hand, there's this logical there's this logical part of it. But on the other hand, there's just sort of the practical experience of once I allowed myself to spiritually begin to relate to God in this way. I had I had lots of really profound experiences, and um, I, we've we've done some work with recovery. I've been involved with some recovery work, and in recovery work, people talk about the God of their understanding. Uh-huh. And when people, let's say even let's say imagine a recovery situation, somebody in a recovery situation decides the God of their understanding. They don't know. They decide they don't even know this God's name, but they're just believing that there's a God out there who loves them, who will never give up on them, and who is. And who is greater, who is greater than all of their weaknesses. And through faith in this God, this God will help them uh, in, to overcome in ways that they can't overcome themselves. And they don't even have a name for this God, but they start relating to this God and they start praying. And what and what they report is that powerful good things start happening. I mean, it's not like God doesn't doesn't respond because you didn't say the prayer with the right name or you know, any, it's almost like the more that you sort of in faith reach out in love to the God of your understanding, the more good things just start happening um, in your life. I had, I had one guy come to church one time and said that he'd met the God of his understanding, who was this God of unconditional love, who never gives up on anybody and who always, you know, succeeds basically, but he just didn't know if that God was welcome at church. <laughs> and and I could say, yeah, as a matter of fact, there is a Christian vision of God that is like this. And that's kind of a oversimplification of a longer conversation that we had. But yeah. it's just really powerful. And, you know, in ministry, when you people are always hesitant to come to the God, they're not they're not so they're not really afraid that Jesus is going to send them away so much as they're afraid that his father is mm-hmm. and that his father is this kind of judge. Mm-hmm. But once but once you say no what Jesus came to do, Jesus is the word of God made flesh. There isn't anything, God is not, there isn't a different being behind uh, Jesus. Jesus is who God is in human form. So we can finally get that idea. Yeah. And so that's, that's just really, that's been really powerful for me and for others. Yeah. It, I hear what you're saying. Sometimes people do set up this, like there's a nice Jesus and then an angry God behind him. And, right. But, it, you know, it completely misses things like, you know, when Jesus says, you know, you see me, you see the father. Right. It, Jesus came to reveal God's heart, not to change God's heart. Um, right. And it's I love that story you shared because it's it's so it's it's funny, but it's also like sad that someone would wonder, is this kind of God allowed in a church? Right. This God who's, you know, completely loving like it. It's kind of sad in some ways, right? I met this God. Of, I met this God of my understanding in recovery, but I didn't know if I could bring him with me to church or not. Uh huh. <laughs> and you know, and what was what was interesting was because I had I had come to that Christian universalism point of view. I could say, yeah, 
uh, yes, that God is welcome here at this church. I don't. He's present in the history of the Christian tradition, but Christians have not always seen God that way. But you can be a Christian and see God and see God that way. I I do that, and I can introduce you to other people who do that as well. And I think that's why these conversations are important, just so that people uh, out there in the world who are thinking about this thing uh, about the possibility of God being this good can just hear hear conversations mm. between two people that are living this way uh, spiritually. So I can report that it's done, that to me, it's been very helpful spiritually. How, how has it been helpful spiritually to you to, 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 to be believing that you're the God, of, that you are the child of the God who is ultimately going to redeem us all and restore the entire creation? How has that sort of uplifted you spiritually in life? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's in some ways. I'm trying to figure out the words to describe it. It it because it's kind of paradoxical. In some ways, it's like it's both relieved a lot of pressure and given me a lot more motivation. Um, in the sense of like, you know, for people that believe in the everlasting torment view of hell, they're often under such an anxious pressure to first of all be saved themselves and then to get other people saved by getting them to believe the right thing. So they it's I think it's hard with that mindset to live with a sense of freedom and creativity and spontaneity because you're just so anxious about am I going to go to heaven or my friends going to go to heaven, you know, that kind of stuff. But I think if you mm-hmm. have this view where you can really entrust yourselves and everything that exists to God, trusting that God is love, um and that God will do what is right by all, it helps you to relax. Uh, And at the same time, it gives me like genuine motivation to want to share about this God with others. You know, it's, it's not my desire to preach, for example, doesn't come from an anxious sense of I have to, or people will go to hell if I don't. It comes from the sense of like, it feels good to live knowing that you're loved by the creator of all that is. And it makes me want to share that. Like, I don't, it's not a, a duty. It's not a burden. It's just, uh, I want to do that. And so I, I, I think in ministry, it's helped me just to have a more genuine desire to want to share about this God, not seeing it as a duty or a pressure or an obligation, just a, a joy and a privilege. Well, I really appreciate your journey uh, You know, for somebody like me who grew up outside of the, outside of Christianity and it sort of you know, came, you might want to say, came in the side door and tried to find my way, tried to find my way into all of this. Sometimes I look to people who grew up in the church and who've known about this, you know, their whole life. And when they see this, it, it gives me, it gives me confidence. Hmm. And, um, and it's one thing to see all this personally, but it's another thing to, to write a book about it. And having written a book about it, I know it's hard. Yeah. It's it's hard to really put this all down, and you have a really good writing style. Uh, Thank you. And your book is your book is accessible uh, for the average person, and uh, you're not afraid to handle some difficult concepts in your book, but you don't write it in such a way that the average person uh, can't get a grasp of it. And so that's why in my book, in the recommended readings, I include your book, and I would recommend anybody that's that's considering uh, Christian universalism as, um, as a possibility. 
uh, to get uh, a copy of Flames of Love. And just just say a little bit about the top the title, Flames of Love. Why did you call it Flames of Love? Yeah. Um, well, I will say this. After it ended up being published and it was on Amazon, I immediately regretted calling it Flames of Love because when you search for Flames of Love on Amazon, a romance novel comes up. Right. <laughs> <laughs> And so it turns out there's actually quite a few romance novels called Flames of Love. So if you search for my book, you have to go down multiple pages past all the steamy stuff. Um, But the flame, flames of love, what does that mean? Well, it's, it's ultimately the idea that the, the flames of hell, if you will, which are of course metaphorical or symbolic, but that they ultimately come from love. That, that God's heart burns with love for us. Uh, and I think, you know, depending on the spiritual state we're in, that, that burning heart of God, if you will, you know, it can either warm us or it can, can burn us. Um, and I think it ultimately it burns away our sin and our delusions and our deceptions and the things that keep us from God. But I, I, th- I think I picked that title, Flames of Love, just to convey that, that idea that whatever hell is, it comes from love because God is love and everything ultimately comes from God. And so just as a way of conveying that idea that whatever hell is, however we think about it, we have to think about it coming from a God who is completely loving. Well, I think that's probably a good place for us to kind of wind things up. I just want to recommend again, uh, Heath Bradley's wonderful book, Flames of Love as a subtitle, Hell and Universal Salvation. And when you're searching for it, on Amazon, you want to put the whole title in and Heath Bradley flames of love, hell and universal salvation. That'll save you a lot of time uh, finding it. Well, it's uh, like I said, I really enjoyed your book. I read it at a crucial time for me. Mm. It was very uh, inspiring. And so God bless you and your ministry and what you're doing and helping people in all the different ways and ways that you do. Do you have any, any last words for, for our listeners? Oh, it's it's been a pleasure to meet you and be with you, and uh, I it, it, I've really enjoyed this this conversation. Uh, it's felt very meaningful, and yeah, I I guess in terms of last words, it's I think a a lot of people, and maybe some that are listening, uh, are very critical of Christian religion. I think more and more people nowadays are critical of Christian religion, um, and for a lot of good reasons. And I guess to them, I would just say. There's other options, right? That you know that oftentimes we associate Christianity with maybe what we grew up with or what you know family members have told us about the Bible or something. Christianity is this huge, mm-hmm. diverse family of faith centered around Jesus, and so I guess I would just say to them, there's it, it's probably bigger than you think it is, and, and there may be there may be ways of expressing faith in Christ that you haven't come across yet. So keep exploring. I guess that would be my my word. All right. Good last words uh, for us. All right. Well, thanks, Heath, for taking some time out of your busy schedule to share with us today. We appreciate it. You bet. Thanks, David. Thank you for joining us in this episode of Grace Saves All. You can help spread the word by sharing this podcast with others and by giving it a rating on iTunes. If you want to find out more about David, or if you'd like to leave him a message, go to his website, davidartman.net. In the meantime, let's work together to help a hurting world know about the greatest news ever announced.